Thanks, Joe. Please keep your Bibles open uh, to that reading. It's good uh, to see you all uh, this morning, and what a privilege it is for us to, to be able to freely meet together and to, to hear God speak to us through his word, the, the Bible. Uh, as a church, we are working our way through part of the book of Acts, which explores how the good news of Jesus was spreading around the world and changing lives and starting churches. And we're up to the, the city of Corinth uh, today. As we uh, begin, let's pray. Ask God to help us as we uh, look at what he's going to say to us this morning. Father, uh, we do thank you for the the ways that you've already uh, challenged us and encouraged us uh, through your word in the book of Acts. And we pray that you'll continue uh, to do that good work in our hearts and lives, not just as individuals, but collectively as, as a local church. So please, God, help us to know what you are wanting to say to us, to how to challenge and encourage, instruct us. Uh, And we pray that uh, you will help us to be uh, ready and eager to hear and to believe and to trust you. And, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When a celebrity dies, you often find Christians scrounging around either for you know, a slither of evidence that maybe suggests the person was converted or maybe they became a Christian late in life, just maybe. And sometimes it wonderfully turns out to be true that they were converted you know, and praise God when that happens. But it's interesting though, isn't it, how we often search and just hope for a sign that maybe God had you know, revealed himself and saved that person, and now they're with Christ. You know, I've done it. I'm sure we all, or many of us have done that, and we just hope. Because eternity without Christ is such a terrifying proposition. And eternity with Christ is such a stunning hope. Within hours of Matt Perry's death, uh, last Sunday, I was seeing Christians searching online and talking about it on social media, looking for a word, a sign, an inkling that maybe Perry had turned to the Lord Jesus at some stage in his life. And it seems as though perhaps he did. We don't know, for certainly, but there seems to be some evidence that he did. Uh, Matt Perry, of course, uh, is a very famous uh, actor, uh, famous from the sitcom Friends, which represented a whole generation of young adults. Uh, when Susan and I were growing up, even though I never got into Friends, these nonetheless, these, these characters from Friends were like cultural figures who were sort of growing alongside us as we were growing up. Now, in his autobiography that was published last year, Perry said this, You have to get famous to know that's not the answer. And nobody who isn't famous will ever truly believe that. Uh, Someone who was reviewing his autobiography uh, said this. uh, They describe it as this. It's a harrowing and revealing about this juncture where extreme compound addictions collide with mega celebrity. We have this particular view of famous people and what their life may be like and all of that, how cool it would be to be like them. And apparently his autobiography is it's a harrowing read where extreme compound addictions collide with mega celebrity. It's not only a celebrity who chases such things. I think we all chase different versions of ourselves and different ambitions and we want to grow into a bigger self. 
or a happier self, or a more successful self, or a more attractive self, or a more wealthy self. And there are all kinds of variations. And yet we hear stories in the news, that of Matt Perry and others every day, reminding us we are mortal beings. We are easily ensnared. We are deeply sinful. And we are profoundly loved by God. Now, the gospel of Jesus, it is not just a thoughtful consideration or a book that you may choose to pick up or not. Death, grief, tragedy, love, friendship, longing. We need good news that can save. And that's why Christ commissions the apostle Paul, or rather Paul, to be an apostle and to go and preach the good news of Jesus so that people might hear and turn to God and be saved. Because there is no other answer. And in our Bible reading today, we're up to Acts chapter 18, and Paul is arriving at the great city of Corinth. Now, of course, no two cities are identical. But Melbourne is probably more like Corinth than Athens that we were looking at last week or Thessalonica that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago. And Corinth, you understand, was a true metropolis. Uh, There was something like three quarters of a million people living in Corinth, which in the ancient world made it an enormous city. Uh, Corinth and Melbourne are similar in a number of ways, uh, being cosmopolitan, Uh, being uh, a city of commerce and being a sporty city. So Corinth, like Melbourne, was like this melting pot of people from all over the world. Of course, it's one of the amazing qualities about Melbourne. Uh, We have people from all over the world now making their home here in in our city. Chinese, Vietnamese, Indian, Greek, Scottish, Ugandan, Jewish, Colombian, South African. And that's just our local church. Think of the broader community. It's amazing. And, of course, local churches are meant to be a little snapshot into what heaven is ultimately going to be like. When there are people from every nation together worshipping God and the Lamb and enjoying life and singing and playing bagpipes and doing maybe a bit of poetic license, but you get the idea. So Corinth is was a cosmopolitan city. It was also a major city of commerce. In Corinth, there were two international ports where traders from the east and from the west would converge to sell their goods. It became a hugely profitable and wealthy city. Uh, One of the the, the facts about Melbourne that sometimes we, we forget is that in the late 19th century, Melbourne was the wealthiest city in the world. Because the gold rush, which started in the 1850, uh, sorry, 1850s, it led to huge numbers of migrants um, coming to Melbourne uh, to live and to, to make money out of, out of gold. And so much of Melbourne City, 150 years ago, was built on gold. So some of the beautiful cities, we, uh, sorry, landmarks and, and buildings in the city today, like the town hall, were built because of the gold and all the money from that commerce and Corinthians also love their sport. Athens, that we were looking at last week, they thought public speaking was a sport. Uh, Corinthians knew what sport really is about. And it was one of the, the leading sporting cities of the ancient world. They had their own version of the MCG. Uh, they were hosting international sporting events, uh, especially the, was it the Isthium Games. So every two years, this uh, international games were, were met at a meeting in Corinth and, and contestants and athletes all over the world would converge in Corinth to compete. 
Only the Olympic Games were venerated more highly than these games in Corinth. Now, as we were reading through the chapter just a few minutes ago, you might have noticed there's a fair bit of movement going on. A big chunk of the chapter is talking about Paul in in Corinth. Uh, He stays there for 18 months. But then we read how Paul then leaves. He travels back across Asia, then down to Jerusalem and to Antioch. And then again back into Galatia, which is sort of the eastern part of Turkey today, because he wants to strengthen the churches there. So there's a lot of movement happening in a single chapter, even though most of the attention is on Corinth. And what Luke is describing in this chapter are the final stages to Paul's second missionary journey. And a lot of the themes that come up in this chapter we've already seen in our series in Acts, haven't we? Paul goes to a new city, he's explaining the good news of Jesus, he's preaching the gospel. We read about there are Jewish people, there are God-fearers, there are Greeks who have become followers of Jesus, and there are also people opposing the good news of Jesus. And that pattern remains the same today throughout the world. People hear and are convinced their lives are changed, and there are other people who no matter how much they hear about Jesus, they just keep hating on God. No matter how kind you are and patient and clear and compelling you are in presenting the Lord Jesus, they still refuse to believe and they might even want to stir up trouble against you. But consider how serious it is to say no to the Lord Jesus. What does verse 6 say? Verse 6, Paul says to the people, blood be on your own head. You are responsible for your life and how you respond to God's appeal to us in Christ. Friends, there is no neutral ground. As though I can say no to Jesus and nothing's going to happen. Uh, Watching the cricket last night, I don't know if you were, um, great game of cricket last night in India, but the conditions were so hot, sweltering conditions, and, and you'll see the players regularly taking breaks and little breaks just to keep their fluid intake up, and then they would go to the side and they would drink like a whole bottle of Gatorade or water and go back on. It was The, the conditions were so hot. And when you, when you see people or even someone talking about hot weather, we know what that's like, don't we? We know how oppressive heat can be. And we know what it's like to experience dehydration in the heat and to be so, so thirsty. But imagine you're dehydrating, your body is starting to shut down, and then someone offers you a drink of water. And then you look at them, but you don't like their appearance, and so you push them away. Or you say, actually, I I don't like water. Uh, Give me a can of Coke instead, or something silly like that. Paul here is saying to those who are hearing, you are responsible for your life and for how you respond to God's merciful and loving gift of salvation in Jesus. Don't push him away. You are responsible for how you respond to the gospel. Now, ours is not to know in advance how people are going to respond, but our responsibility is to faithfully and lovingly offer out this word of life And to trust God. So as this gospel begins to work in this amazing city of Corinth, what we're given are some tiny pieces of information about people's lives being changed and how these lives begin to interact with others and and for what becomes the church. Now, we might be familiar with the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, we see it takes a church to grow a Christian. 
and it takes a church to reach a city. And that's the beginning of the, or the impressions we're given here in Acts 18. So we're given the names of several individuals. Now, Paul is kind of featuring throughout the chapter, but there's a range of people who are included in Luke's uh, telling of this story and, it, and how he's telling the story of this church in Corinth beginning from its very earliest days. And what I want us to do for the rest of our time this morning is to be looking at each of these individuals. I want us to consider these men and women, and because as we glimpse this kaleidoscope of early believers that forms a church... I think there are all kinds of helps and encouragements for us as we think of our roles and our opportunities as a local church. So we're going to go through each of these characters this morning. The first one is, is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's an outsider who comes to, to Corinth with a message. Let me read from verse 1, Acts chapter 18. So Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul is doing what he does everywhere else, and that is he's preaching Christ and him crucified. He has a message to share. He has a vital message of good news that he wants to communicate. But initially, on this, in this occasion, Paul has to take a job on the side. Now, there, there are seasons in Paul's ministry where he was receiving financial support, so he didn't need to work with his hands. Instead, he could devote himself fully to preaching the gospel. But there are other seasons when Paul needed to to work and take up a part-time job, sometimes a full-time job, to provide for his daily needs and expenses. Uh, He was a tent uh, maker by trade. And that's what he's doing here when he moves to Corinth. So he finds work in Corinth. Uh, We're told at the Sabbath, on the Saturday, he's preaching at the local synagogue. He's teaching, he's evangelizing. But during the week, he is working. And while he's working in his tannery, he meets a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. So let's take a look at them, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, This couple, they're not native to Corinth. They are migrants. We're told that they had been forced to leave the city of Rome. The emperor Claudius had been pushing out the Jews. Uh, See, bigotry against Jewish people has very, very ancient roots. Because they were Jewish, they were forced uh, to leave. They're now finding a new home in Corinth. They're working in Corinth. Paul is working alongside them. Now, this uh, couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they're mentioned seven times in the New Testament. And five times, Priscilla's name appears before Aquila, and twice it's the other way around. So it's thought that maybe Priscilla had been born into a higher class than her husband, And so social convention would have it that her name would be mentioned first. So that's probably what's going on here. We don't really know definitively. It's generally what scholars assume is happening. But in his opening sentences about Priscilla and Aquila, we're not given any other information about this couple other than they've moved to Corinth. They're now working with Paul at this local leather business. But at some point during Paul's 18 months in Corinth, and it seems probably early on, they're both converted. They become followers of Jesus. And so not only does Paul become friends with this married couple, but they now become work colleagues and something even deeper. So in Romans chapter 16, 
This is some years later. Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in Rome, and he says this. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. In fact, look down to verse 18 here in Acts 18. We read this. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters, sailed for Syria, and accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So they are accompanying Paul. They're becoming key members of the first church in Ephesus. So these are a couple who mean a lot to Paul. They are partners in the gospel with Paul. They're serving with Paul so that people can hear about Jesus. Now let's look down to verse 24 of Acts 18, because we find out a bit more information about this couple, this normal, amazing couple. Verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So here they're showing hospitality to a stranger. They welcome this guy into their, into their home. It's such a powerful way, isn't it, that we can love and care and welcome others. I do think in Australia it's something of a, of a lost practice. We've forgotten how to open our homes spontaneously and just casually and, and warmly. And we, we do it, but not as much as we ought to do it or could do it. It's such a wonderful way to love others, isn't it? The Bible so often encourages Christians to, to show hospitality. And not just with a friend, not with your friends, not only with the people you kind of like and get along with, but even the outsider, the stranger, the visitor. And so here's Priscilla and Aquila inviting Apollos home, not only for a meal, but also to disciple him. We're told you know, that Apollos is an intelligent guy. You kind of imagine him having a, a master's degree in philosophy or theology. He knows how to read the Bible and Greek and Hebrew. He, he has an understanding of Jesus, but he's not yet knowing Jesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila are going to take time with him. Come home. Let's eat. And can we explain the way of God to him? We were talking about discipleship a couple of weeks ago. It pops up here again. It shouldn't surprise us because the theme of discipleship comes up again and again and again and again throughout the New Testament. See, to preach Christ is to make disciples. To disciple people is, whether with a big crowd or with one person, it is to open God's word. And to show and to talk and to um, listen to questions, to persuade men and women so they turn from sin and now start following Jesus. A few people have already signed up for some training to learn how to better be equipped to, to read the Bible with somebody else one-on-one. -on -one. And, and if you'd like to do that and you haven't signed up, then come and talk to me after church and I'll add your name to that list. So we've got Priscilla and Aquila doing simple, ordinary, but wonderful things for the sake of the gospel. We then meet Silas and Timothy. Now, we've already met these guys. Silas has been with Paul since the start of this missionary journey. Timothy joined halfway through and has been with Paul for many, many months now. But now they're arriving in Corinth. What, what do we see in verse 5? 
When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So with their arrival, Paul's circumstances change. Now we're not told how or what exactly goes on, but when they arrive, Paul can now dedicate himself solely to telling people about Jesus. So maybe Silas and Timothy have got jobs in Corinth so they can support Timothy, sorry, Paul. Or it could be the case, as was often the case, is that they've been raising money. They've been supporting, uh, raising support for Paul around the churches. And they'll come to Corinth with this money so that Paul can live and feed and sleep, but while devoting himself fully to the ministry of the word. They've released him so that he doesn't have to work in order so that he can work fully to tell people about Jesus. You know, financial support, it's, it's important, isn't it? Giving generously, it's not about paying a God tax. It's not about making us feel good about ourselves because we gave some money to God. Supporting gospel ministry in financial ways, it is a crucial way that God enables gospel mission to grow. Someone might not be able to preach, but you can give. Someone may not have a lot of time on their hands right now, but you can use your income to help God's gospel grow. I mean, gospel growth, it's about seeing lives transformed by the Lord Jesus. That is the best investment we could ever make. Uh, Here at Mentone Baptist Church, uh, the vast amount of money that is given uh, as people decide to give uh, goes to paying for staff and ministry and mission with the purpose so that the gospel can be advancing both here and around the world. Now, some money does go to insurance and upkeeping property and things like that. You know, that's kind of important, yes. But the finance team, in case you're wondering, give us regular um, updates and reports. So like four times a year when the church gathers, we're giving a report. This is our income and these are our expenditures so that we all know where the money is going and, and, and how it's being used. Uh, a few years uh, later, after Paul visited Corinth, he writes a couple of letters to the church. And uh, in 2 Corinthians, he says to the church, I want you to give, but I want you to give cheerfully. It's a lovely word, isn't it? To give cheerfully, not reluctantly, not miserably, not half-heartedly. I want to give cheerfully because God has given so much to us. It's like Paul saying, consider the gospel, consider what the Lord Jesus has done for us and then decide, plan, give, commit to giving yourself and reassess that giving regularly. I know we don't talk about giving very much here at Mentone, and, uh, but if you are someone who isn't giving but you would like to give, we do have these little cards on the foyer table, on the welcome table, that have the bank details. So you're very welcome to take one of those and to, to give as you choose and decide to give. Uh, but in, not only at church, but our partner missionaries as well are always needing further financial support. Can I encourage you to prayerfully consider, plan, and commit? Now, I know there are many things that Christians can and do give to. I get that. There's a thousand causes that are all worthy and important and we want to give money and we might be giving money to. You know, but one thing that governments and charities and the average Joe never gives to is gospel work. Now, that makes sense, right? Of course, it makes, it's why they wouldn't do that. But it is our joy to do so. 
So Silas and Timothy turn up. Then we're going to read a name, not much information about him in verse 7. Titius Eustace. Look at verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Eustace, a worshipper of God. It's another example of hospitality. Then we read about Crispus, verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So Crispus is a a notable figure in the city of Corinth, uh, and especially in the Jewish community. He's the synagogue leader. He's like a bit of like an elder or a pastor of a church. He has a responsibility, especially to teach the scriptures. And so Paul has come and is explaining the gospel from the Bible. And as Crispus is hearing about Jesus and he's examining the scriptures, it's all coming together. It makes sense. And he's realizing that the promised Messiah is this Jesus. And he believes. And God saves him. He's accepting Jesus. And so does everyone in his household. And then we're told that Crispus and his household and many other people are baptized. Now, you're someone who, who might be, uh, have been coming along to church for a very long time or perhaps just a very short time. You might be someone who's read through the Bible many times or maybe you're just beginning to read and to explore it. But whether short or, or long period of time, you're now convinced. You believe Jesus is God's son. Jesus did die on the cross for my sin. I am a sinful person. You do believe Jesus was raised from the dead so that you can have hope, you can have new life. Could I encourage you, if you're someone who is now convinced of who Jesus is, your need for him and God's gift of salvation through him, follow the example of these early Christians in Corinth, believe the gospel, be changed by that gospel and get baptised. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. You get baptized. Baptism isn't a good work. It doesn't make you a super Christian or a better Christian, but it tells the world, I am now following Jesus. He has saved me. He has forgiven me. Now, as, as you're, well, many of you are aware, last Sunday we were hoping to have a baptism. Uh, we had to delay it because of illness, and, and that's okay, And because we also flooded the church building, but leave that one aside. All right. Uh, but we are going to have a baptism service in a few weeks' time, November 26. Uh, we're not going to flood the church again, so we're going to do it outside. Um, if you're believing in Jesus and you're trusting him for salvation and you haven't been baptized, let's have that conversation. Maybe you'll, you'll be able to get baptized in a few weeks' time, but we're hoping to have the baptism service in February or March, perhaps then. Have that conversation. So there's Crispus, and now there's Sosthenes. So this city of Corinth is now finding itself in in upheaval because the the message of Jesus is changing people's lives, it's challenging people's uh, ethics, their beliefs, their worldview, and it's causing all this turmoil. Everything's getting sort of confused because lives are being changed. But some people are getting really aggressive and angry, they don't like it, and the government is brought into the situation, but they're not really interested. So we read how the crowd turns on Sosthenes. He's another synagogue leader. They beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. 
Now, of course, when a Christian does the wrong thing, if, if you have broken the law or maybe you've behaved in a sinful, ungodly way, there are consequences, aren't there? Depending on what you've done and, and how severe it is, but there are always consequences. Maybe not a, a mob publicly assaulting you, but there might be legal ramifications, criminal charges, social consequences, even you know, in terms of how you can serve a church. But it can also be the case, as it is for Sosthenes here, is that now you've heard about Jesus. You believe he's the Christ and you're going to live for him. And because of that, and you're starting to live like Jesus, people are hating on you and they're starting to bully you and they're insulting you. They think you're stupid and they think you may be even evil and they assault you. It's a great reminder, don't expect our society to love us when we are following Jesus. We've already seen many times in our series, as Paul is going from one city to another, there were these people who were following him and hounding him and stirring up trouble. All over the world, Christians can be insulted. Sometimes the insult really hurts, doesn't it? Or you lose a friend. Or people decide they're going to overlook you at work. And in some parts of the world, Christians are pushed around, they are beaten, they are put in prison and even killed. I mean, Jesus said the world hated him and it will also hate you. Let's look at Apollos. We've already said something about Apollos, but I want us to make a further point about this uh, guy. Paul des- uh, sorry, Luke is describing Apollos as a very gifted thinker and teacher, but he still needed God to save him. He still needed God to change his heart and open his eyes to, to trust in Jesus. You know, intelligence, education, giftedness doesn't qualify anybody for the kingdom of God. But in God's mercy, God can save us and use those things for his good to advance the gospel. And that's what happens with Apollos. And probably more than Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos becomes a really key leader in the early church. Uh, if you've got your Bible with you, turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. We read earlier in, in the service. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of sentences. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, from the end of verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not mere human beings? So it's kind of cool. Paul, Apollo is such an an educated, intelligent dude, and yet Paul's saying, well, you're just another person. Are we just mere human beings? Verse 5, what is, after all, Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So that's really helpful. The Lord assigns each of us a task uh, to advance his gospel. He, the Lord gives us different skills and opportunities to advance his gospel. So Paul, we know, came to Corinth. He's preaching. He's evangelizing. He's discipling. He's gathering people. He's training people. But notice what he says there in verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God makes it grow. So Paul is the guy who brings the good news of Jesus to Corinth, but that's not the end of the story. You know, know, the Bible loves gardening images. 
and I don't kind of always understand him because I don't know how to garden, but, but the Bible, I need to repent maybe. Uh, but, so you've got this idea of the seed. So uh, Paul planted the seed in the soil that is Corinth. The seed is the gospel. It's the word of God. Paul came speaking God's message about Jesus, and he planted in the city of Corinth. That, and that was job, uh, Paul's job. Right? That's the evangelist's job. It's explaining the gospel. It's putting it on the agenda. It's allowing it to sink into people's hearts and minds. And then Apollos comes and he's raised up. And he's giving his energy and he's teaching so that the water, so he's like watering it so that that seed might grow. And grow so that it becomes faith in people's lives. But it's all God's doing, Paul says. It's God's power, it is God's seed, it's God's work from beginning to end. But one of the things I love as, as Paul talks about uh, Apollos, both here and but also as we find out about him in Acts, and as we read about all these other characters in, in the city of Corinth, we get this little window into the, to, to show that Paul needs co-workers. Growing God's kingdom isn't a one-man job. Paul needed partners. He needed fellow believers, people to work along, men and women working alongside him. Yeah? It's not just what we need. It's, it's, it's how God has designed things to be. It's, it's what a church is doing. Did anyone stay up late last night for the cricket? You're not very good Australians, are you? <laughs> so the real, authentic, genuine article uh, did... Uh, and I actually fell asleep, but Susan watched more than me, actually. But anyway, if you, if you, it doesn't matter, whatever the sport is, you'll notice that when you've got a team sport, every player has a role. No two players have the exact same role or fielding position. Right? No, they're not identical. The fielding positions are different. Some of them are specialist opening batsmen. Some of them specialise in being middle order batsmen. Some of them are spin bowlers. Some of them are fast bowlers. One of them is going to be a wicket keeper. They've all got different jobs, don't they? They all have a different role in, in the team. But it's the variation, the multiplicity of roles that actually makes the whole. You see, together they are a complete team and defeated the English. All right, so Michael's, uh, uh, Mitchell Stark, he's not Steve Smith. Dave Warner isn't Pat Cummins. But each was playing their role, and we beat the English. Did I mention that one? Uh, but thinking back, back to the Ashes, there was this scene in the Ashes series when we were, again, beating the English, where Nathan Lyon, one of Australia's great players, uh, he was injured. He got injured during the game and uh, he couldn't bowl. He injured his calf and he could barely walk. But the team was facing this uphill battle that we were uh, sort of crumbling at the seams and we needed Nathan Lyon as our last hope to go out to bat and maybe save the test match. And Pat Cummins, who was the captain, told him, don't go out. Like, you, you, you literally, you're on crutches, you can't walk, don't go out. But Lyon uh, explained afterward, he says, he said, I knew the risks, but I will do anything for this team. And he went out and he saved the test match with half a leg. Friends, the gospel of Christ and people's eternity is so important. It matters so much. What a church is... 
Is God gathering people from all kinds of places and backgrounds with different skills together in Jesus? All kinds of people, wide range of people, but together for the gospel. And that's what we see the beginnings of here in Acts 18 in the city of Corinth. You've got people doing all kinds of things, uh, offering at their home, um, food, shelter, hospitality, offering God's words, praying, discipling people, facing angry mobs, taking hits, doing all kinds of things. Friends, be part of what God is doing in Melbourne. And in this church, there are no redundant members. There is no unnecessary people. Together, in different ways, we are together serving the one God and the one gospel so that people might hear about Jesus and be saved. That is what we're about. And we can be part of this through showing hospitality, discipling people, giving financially, Teaching, encouraging. There are many ways to be serving behind the scenes, up front, being part of a team, publicly, privately, all kinds of ways. This church, it's not like a club where you're here because you've got just a, you're sharing a common interest, like a, like a hobby or a sport. Maybe you like fishing or doing woodwork or something like that. And so you join a, a club and you know, and you do a bit of it together, but that's, that's all that, that sort of draws you together. We're not like that. We are the church of the living God. And on the horizon is eternity. It is heaven and hell. And I get that may seem for some of us really distant right now. Maybe that horizon seems a long way off. But then someone close to you dies. Or news breaks, another Matthew Perry, someone we never knew, but you know, because of the, te- the power of TV, it's like we've lost a friend. And we feel that abruptness and, and that, that separation and end point. Surely, God, we're thinking there must be hope. You see, we're not just another club or, or an interest group or an education center. We are the people of God saved by God to advance his good news so that people might be saved. And we've experienced that loving work of God in our own hearts, if, if you're a Christian today. And we know something of what it's like when God brings people together. That's what we are here at Mentone. So let me ask you, how are you serving God's mission? What I want you to do is to take a few moments to think about it, even write it down on your phone if you wish to. Write down on your phone, how are you serving God's mission right now in this current season? Is there anything you want to add? Something you want to change? Let me just give you, what, 30 seconds to to think about that right now. And if you're not a member of the church, but you love Jesus and you want Mentone to be your home, can I encourage you to join us, become a member, start serving and use the gifts that God has given you.
I'm not sure what you wrote down and if there's something uh, you want to add or change in terms of serving here at church, you might be asking there, well, who do I talk to? Uh, if you are unsure, um, ask me or Mike, one of the elders. You might want to talk to Rachel Whitbread, who has been looking after the kids' biz. Uh, you, or you could talk to uh, Caleb or, or Sandra about youth group. If you're itching to maybe lead a Bible study group next year, talk to Mike. We have these uh, potential, uh, what we call these porch ministries, new evangelism ministries that we might, we're thinking about next year. We don't know which one we should be starting, but we're really keen to. It could be restarting the play group. It might be starting a, an English uh, class uh, or even a, something like a food bank. We want to create more opportunities where we, we are building bridges with our local community. But what those bridges are depends on people's availability and keenness. If you are really passionate about one of those things and you haven't already let me know, please let me know because we want to start planning for what we might be doing next year. It's a wonderful picture of the church, isn't it? Different people, different men and women doing different things, but together serving to see the gospel advancing. Let's pray that God continues to do that good work amongst us. Yeah? Let me pray for us now. Father, I firstly want to pray for those who are with us who are not yet in a relationship with you, not yet following the Lord Jesus, but they're here this morning. They've been coming perhaps for a while now and, and you're, they're learning more about Jesus. I pray, gracious God, that you will help them to be convinced that Jesus is your son. And he really did die for their sin. He really did rise from the dead so that they might have eternal life. So please, God, convince them even today. Help them to turn from living however they've been living and to now turn to serve the living God. And I pray for those who are trusting Jesus. I pray that you will keep encouraging us in a multiplicity of ways to be serving together for the sake of seeing the gospel growing. Father, where we maybe need to make some adjustments in, in our life to allow sufficient time or to prioritise gospel ministry, if there are things that, we, uh, that are distracting us or taking us away from, um, from serving you, please make that really clear to us. Help us to repent and to make those practical changes. And we pray that you will really give us not just a burden but a joy to serve together in all kinds of ways, that we might love each other, and keep seeing the gospel going forward so that many more men and women may know you and hear of the great salvation that can be theirs through faith in Jesus. We pray that your spirit will keep doing that work amongst us and we look forward to seeing the fruit that can be born from your gospel here. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.